You know, we were pretty confident we, we'd used those simulation tools throughout the development of our AC72 in San Francisco and the 50 in Bermuda. But when, when you have experienced sailors come out and comment on the concept and say, well, it looks great on paper, but you know, I just can't see how that boat's ever going to take off. How are you going to accelerate? How are you going to generate the riding moment? You, you start to you know, you think twice and you think, well, if, you know, if he's saying that, maybe he's got a point. So absolutely no silly, well no, there's plenty of silly ideas, but it's, it's completely um, okay and acceptable to put those ideas on the table and you know we'll, we'll have a laugh about some of them. A lot of them will fall by the wayside but there'll be you know those, those gems that we latch onto and turn into something pretty amazing. It wasn't a new idea. I mean, I, I remember when I first joined Alinghi, I was you know, saying, why, why do people grind when there's, surely there's more power in the legs? The, the response has always been, well, the sailors need to be able to move around and, and grab ropes and you don't want to be locked in on a bike and it's difficult tacking and, and so on. But I think, you know, a lot of that feeling came from grinders who, uh, you know, often were in pretty senior positions in the teams and, you know, their whole career is, is based on upper body strength. The America's Cup has long been at the cutting edge of yacht racing, and we've seen incredible development over the last decade or so. And a lot of that has to do with Dan Bernasconi, who is today's guest on Broadreach Radio. Dan is head designer at Emirates Team New Zealand, and played a large hand in things like the evolution of foiling in the America's Cup. The use of cyclores on Team New Zealand's boat for the Bermuda campaign in 2017, as well as the design of the AC75 monohulls used in the last edition in Auckland. Dan's route to the America's Cup came via Formula One, and he talks about the six years he spent with McLaren when they were at the top of the tree, how he then got into the sailing game, and how he approaches boat design. He also delves into some of the major developments he's been behind. The team's thinking around when to reveal to rival teams some of the latest innovations they've been working on, and what it's like when some of the radical design features come off. It was fascinating to chat with Dan Bernasconi and get a sense of his journey in the sport. He's clearly an exceptional talent and a major cog in Team New Zealand's wheel. Fortunately for lay people like me, Dan doesn't get too technical in this podcast, so dive in and enjoy. Well, joining us on the show today is Dan Bernasconi from Enumerates Team New Zealand. Welcome. Oh, thanks very much. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I guess everybody wants to know, and this is the burning question really, is uh, when are we going to know where the next America's Cup is going to be? Yeah, we're, we're really uh, keen to, to find out too um, within the design team here. We're, we're working on it pretty hard. Uh, we're talking to a number of host cities and, um, you know, well aware that uh, everyone in the industry and, you know, all our supporters really want to know the answer to that. But we also want to make sure it's the right choice and, and the best place for the next America's Cup. So we will have that information out pretty soon. 
That's a very good diplomatic answer, Dan. Well done. <laughs> Do my best. The, the, look, the America's Cup at least was back in the news last week uh, with the announcement that production of the AC40s, which will be used for the Women's and Youth America's Cup, was well underway. It's not the first design you've been heavily invo- involved in, but you know, what is it like for a designer to see their creations come to life? Yeah, I mean it's it's fantastic, and it's you know it's what what we're all about here um, in the design team. That's that's what we're working for to to see um, sort of our creativity turned into to real yachts on the water. And I mean the AC40 is a really exciting boat for us because it is quite different because it's a production boat where with all we've ever done really is is one offs, and even those one offs are continually changing, continually developing. So it's it's a really interesting process for us to be doing a boat which has to be right first time and it's, it's a really cool little boat and we know that from, from our sailing on a sort of a prototype version of that in the um, in the last cup. So it's a different process and um, we're all really excited about it. So is this design essentially Takahu, you know, that 38-foot training boat that, that Team New Zealand came up with for the last America's Cup? It certainly shares some pedigree with Takahu. Um, but it's it's actually a much uh, more sophisticated boat. We we've always been limited on budget in Team New Zealand, and Takahu was deliberately a fairly cheap boat, um, and that shows in in the lines, which um, are mainly sort of flat panel construction. Um, whereas the AC40, because we're building a, a series, we can afford to build a, a tool. Um, which means it's, it's uh, hydrodynamically and aerodynamically um, much more refined shapes, um, the shape of the hull, uh, much more like our actual race yacht, uh, uh, the AC-75. And so it's, we, we really see it as a, a, a step on from our AC-75 race boat, but at a smaller scale rather than um, a development of Takahu. I actually read somewhere that there was so much interest in Takahu that you sort of produced a draft marketing brochure. Do you see a time when the general population might be able to sail a craft like this, or does it need to be, you know, very competent sailors? It's definitely um, going to come more to the wider market. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's always going to be a super high performance boat. Um, and you're not going to go from from sailing an Opti to sailing an AC40, uh, but we we're also keen to to bring it to um, sort of a wider audience, and so we're concentrating a lot on features like um, automatic ride height control, so a sort of autopilot. So yes, certainly the intention is that um, it will be saleable by a much bigger cross-section of the sailing community and and not just your sort of absolute professional top-level sailors. I guess that might sound pretty exciting for some listeners out there. But, you know, I guess that brings us to the wider question of, you know, designing radical boats. You know, how do you come up with ideas, you know, for instance, like the AC-75 that we saw at the last America's Cup and we'll see again in that next edition? Do you kind of have you know, eureka moments, wake up in the middle of the night and need to write stuff down, or are they sort of more slow burners? Um, it's probably a bit of both. Uh, the, I mean, the AC-75 was, I would say, a lot of iteration, um, punctuated by, yeah, a few, one or two eureka moments of um, 
foil configuration um, and um, just the, the, the overall stability of the boat. Um, and those ideas come from across the design team and, and the sailing team as well. I mean, we're lucky to have a really talented group um, within the, the wider team. And, you know, ideas come from all quarters. So uh, it's, it's bringing, bringing those ideas to the table, um, weeding out the, the, the cool ones, um, uh, and then a lot, of, a lot of hard work in sort of uh, developing those ideas uh, into something that's actually gone from a, a sort of an, a concept to something that's actually going to work and, and something that we can have confidence is going to work. Tell me about some of those kind of meetings, particularly with your, your design team, because there's quite a few who are involved at, at Team New Zealand. Is it kind of like a case of there are no silly ideas and you see what sticks? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're lucky to have a fantastic culture within the team. Um, so our design meetings are, are very open. We have a lot of sailors in those meetings as well, um, shore crew sometimes as well. So absolutely no silly, well, no, there's plenty of silly ideas. <laughs> it's, it's completely um, okay and acceptable to put those ideas on the table. And, you know, we'll, we'll have a laugh about some of them, but uh, so many of, of the things, that, the innovations that, that we've developed over the years have, have started with, you know, just, just seeds of imagination and ideas that, um, you know, we'll, a, a lot of them will fall by the wayside, but there'll be, you know, those, those gems that we latch onto and turn into something pretty amazing. When many people sort of saw that A75 and the concept of it, particularly that kind of the normal Joe off the street, they wondered how the boats were meant to stay up. You know, are, are there ever times when you sort of question the road that you're going down? Yeah, um, I mean, with the AC75, it, it was a really new concept, and we launched into um, the AC75 rule and effectively committed the, the teams that had entered the America's Cup to spending millions of dollars on, on building and sailing these boats, having no practical test that, that it was going to work. So, yeah, there was a lot of uh, commitment in our simulation tools um and our experience to to know that it, it, it we were investing in a, a sound concept um you know we were pretty confident we we'd used those simulation tools throughout the development of our ac72 in san francisco and the 50 in bermuda so um we we knew they they were um were accurate but nonetheless when when you have ex experienced sailors come out and comment on the concept and say well, it looks great on paper, but, you know, I just can't see how that boat's ever going to take off. How are you going to accelerate? How are you going to generate the riding moment? You you start to, you know, you think twice and you think, well, if, you know, if he's saying that, maybe he's got a point. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, were, we were pretty, uh, you know, confident and nervous at the same time. Um, probably the... The, the biggest relief, actually, was when we first saw our competitors start to produce um, their smaller versions of boats because they did that a long time before we did. We we actually went straight into the development of our first AC75, whereas um, our competitors all created um, smaller versions of that concept. And when we first saw those concepts um, up and sailing, you know that was a bit of validation that yes, it does actually work. 
but there must have been a few nerves before your first sort of sailing day. Do you, do you remember that day and what it was like when the boat hit the water and you saw it get up for the first time? Is that a, sort of a time then perhaps you're the most nervous, maybe even more nervous than even race days? Uh, no, I'd, I'd say definitely not not as nervous as race days. No, I mean I'm I'm not good on race days. I don't I don't uh, don't enjoy the nerves then very much at all. But um, uh, I, I think by the time that that we launched uh, our boat one, um, the uh, AC seventy five, we were pretty pretty confident by then you know we'd done so much work on it so much simulation we understood the boat so well before it was even in the water that we didn't really have doubts about whether we were going to be able to take off and fly and whether it was going to work probably the the nerves at that point are more on a sort of technical level on all the hydraulic systems the electrical systems the structural soundness of it um the, the details rather than the concept I'm guessing there's just so much data that comes off these boats. You know, how much do you actually rely on sailors actually telling you what things feel like, things that really can't be measured? Yeah, we do do rely a lot on on sailor feedback, and, and we're fortunate in the team to have some extremely technical sailors, um, not least starting with with Pete, um, and. You know, the understanding of how the boat's behaving that they bring is, is super important because, yeah, as you say, we, we're logging hundreds of channels of data, you know, far more than we can ever really dive into in, in detail. You know, there's, there's, you're recording all this data, but you, you only have the, the time and the ability to, to look at a fraction of it, but you, you never know which fraction of it you, you, you need to look at until, until after the event, which is why we record so much. Um, but yeah, a, a comment or feedback from sailors is sort of worth worth megabits of of uh, channel numeric data, um, and and the insights that we get from that um, is, is often far more than you can pull out through some analysis. We're also told that the America's Cup is, you know, the Formula One of sailing due to the fact that it's, you know, cutting edge of, of technology. Is there a limit to what can be done with these craft? Well, I, I suppose, you know, we're, as designers, we're, we love optimising. So we're always going to be saying there's more that can be done. You know, we, we can always develop a faster hull shape, better foils, better sails, better systems, hydraulics, um, better simulation tools. We, we can, you know, we'll never get bored of doing that. Um, but the, the class, as you go through the generations, and we saw that with version five boats that you know, had their, uh, their last sail in, in Valencia in 2007, each generation is probably a little bit less different from the one before, as teams tend to converge. Um, ultimately, in terms of performance, yes, there is a limit, and that's probably the cavitation limit, where there's a point when you're foiling where the at a certain speed, the the pressure gets so low on one side of the foil that the water effectively um, boils, and that creates a lot of drag. So th that's why you, you see the boats getting just around 50 knots mark, or just over 50 knots. Um, but unless you go for something radically different, 
um, and design foils which are designed to operate in that sort of post-cavitation regime, uh, there is effectively a wall around that 50 knots mark. So we're not going to see these kind of boats going 60 knots. I'll still spectacular at that speed, that's for sure. Um, there's, there's obviously a connection for you with Formula One, um, having previously worked with the McLaren Formula One team for six years, and, and I'm keen to explore that further with you. But just before we dive into that, let's just sort of backtrack a little bit and look a little bit more into your background. You grew up in a, a small village of Ashau uh, in Warwickshire. Ashau, yeah. Yeah. For those struggling to picture where it is, and I had to do a little bit of research, it's situated uh, south of Coventry, basically in the centre of England. And according to census records, the population grew from 104 in 2001 to 108 in 2011. So some significant population growth then, obviously. What was it like for a young Dan Berners-Coney? Yeah, well, um, over 100, it's getting pretty big now. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a super small village, it was a beautiful, idyllic village that you probably appreciate a bit more as a as an adult um, than, than you do as a kid. I mean, it, it was cool and, you know, we would just spent all day running around from one, one garden to the next, everyone knew everyone, and we were riding our bikes around the village. Um, but there weren't many kids there. Uh, there was... Um, the boy a couple of doors down from me um, that we were good friends with um, and yeah a couple of others at the other end of the village um, so and we and there was no school there we, we went to school in Coventry um, so you know you couldn't, couldn't hang out with uh, friends after school very easily so yeah pros and cons but um, yeah certainly a beautiful place my, my dad still lives there so mathematics seems to be your, your thing. You've got a master's from Cambridge University and a PhD in mathematical modelling and in aerodynamics. So as a student, you know, where did you see yourself going? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think I had a really clear idea. And I mean, even I, um, when I when I applied to Cambridge originally, I applied to do computer science, and then. Before I even got there, I decided that was the wrong thing for me, and I, I started doing maths. And then a term into maths at Cambridge, I wanted to change again and went to engineering. Um, I was always trying to keep my options open. Um, I was I was really keen on doing architecture, actually. That was uh, <laughs> something that I, I I'd love to do in another lifetime. Um, but yeah, I I don't think I knew what I was going to do when I graduated. Um, I you know I was, I was really into the technical side and the mathematical side of engineering but um yeah kind of uh, just just took what came along where you ended up though was formula one working as a vehicle dynamics engineer with mclaren um you know how did that move to formula one come about yeah um it was uh it certainly wasn't because i was trying to get into formula one i, I actually had very little interest in cars that you know i didn't watch formula one at all um, but out of the blue, my supervisor from Cambridge got in touch with me and uh, she said that she, she'd left Cambridge a couple of years before and um, she was working at McLaren and would I be interested in going for an interview? Um, I said, no, uh, I've got, you know, just, just not into cars at all. Um, but she eventually persuaded me to, to go and chat to them and, um, yeah, probably quite a good interview strategy, just telling them you don't really want the job. <laughs> um, yeah, eventually, you know, I, I realised that it was a, a super cool place to work. And even though I, I 
didn't have a love of cars and I still don't. It, it was working in a very high level technical environment doing you know, really interesting sort of pretty academic engineering type work with with very very talented people so yeah I mean I, I did really enjoy my time there and learned a lot from it but I guess six years into it I thought I I'm still I still don't love the end product it's just you know not my thing and um, I, I felt that I wanted to to make a change um, to something that I was actually a bit more passionate about. Yeah, we'll have a look at that shortly. But just, uh, you know, what was that role with the Formula One team and and knowing now what you do and how radical you can get with boats, you know, how could rad- how radical could you get with cars and working within the rules? Yeah, I mean, my role at McLaren was to develop um, phys- physics models or mathematical models of the car. So um, building up models of the suspension system, the engine, the aerodynamics, um, and, and even the driver, um, and then using those simulation models to predict lap times and then look at if you changed you know, change the suspension geometry or you change the aerodynamics, then how would that uh, affect the performance of the car around different circuits or different parts of the circuits, then developing tools that the race engineers could use at the track so um, if a driver came in and said, complained of, of oversteer or understeer, then they could uh, sort of experiment virtually with changing um, spring or damper settings and s- try a few different options, then decide which is the, the one which is going to give the, the best um, change to the car to, to solve the problem the driver's complaining about and um, make that change and send the car out for another lap. Did you travel with the team to race days? Um, a, f- a few races, but mostly two tests. There were separate test teams and race teams at that point and sort of doing alternating weeks. Um, I wasn't in either the, of the test team or the race team, but as part of uh, developing the simulations, I quite often go to the tests um, to sort of support how the simulation tools were used um, and to, to see how we could make them better. It's quite a travelling circus, isn't it? So, you know, what was that experience like for you to be you know involved in formula one and it, it was really exciting to to sort of get a taste of, of what it was like um massively high pressure on on race days um i mean it wasn't i wasn't absolutely in the front line of of being a race engineer um but i could certainly see the the pressure that that those guys were under um you know there's so much at stake on, on race days and, you know, only one little thing needs to go wrong for it to be a game over for the, the team on that day. It was a reasonably successful time though, wasn't it? Because during your time with McLaren, you won two Drivers' World Championships with Mika Hakkinen and one Constructors' uh, World Championship. You know, it, it's such a massive team. I think I, I saw somewhere there's like a thousand people involved. You know, do you all sort of get that sense of achievement when things like that happen? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I arrived at the the peak of, um, sort of McLaren's glory days with winning the Constructors' uh, Championship within um, the first year that I was there and uh, Mika getting uh, two, two Drivers' Championships. And pretty much over the six years that I was there, it went, went steadily downhill, I'm afraid. Uh, so I can't take any credit for that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was... I would say, you know, the 
there's a there is a lot of excitement there, but but actually nothing like what I've seen and experienced here in America's Cup because the organisation is so big. You know, you've got as you say a thousand people. It, it is. It felt to me more like uh, more like a sort of normal office job um, than so much being in a team. And and the you know the guys that have been at McLaren for twenty years used to talk about the good old days. You know when it really had that that team atmosphere and um sort of all working together pulling together in the, in the garage to to try and win a race um it, it to me felt more corporate and then going from there um to an america's cup team i i think you know what what i've experienced in america's cup is is a little bit what what those guys were feeling when they were talking about the, the good old days of formula one because america's cup teams are small enough that everyone feels they've got a you know really significant impact in in what's happening on the water and everyone can make a difference to to winning so we we do feel um here in team new zealand absolutely uh, to be a team it's, it's not a it's not an office job so did you go directly from mclaren to america's cup i think it was at 2006 yeah, I, I decided at McLaren that after six years I wanted to make a change, and I I was made a concerted effort to get into America's Cup, and so I I wrote to a lot of teams, Team New Zealand included, um, but the general response I had was um, you, you don't know anything about boats, which was completely true. Um, so uh, I was lucky that um, at that point Alingi um, said. Also, we don't have a job for you, but um, would you consider doing a PhD and working with us on that PhD? So I worked uh, with Alingi, with an um, uh, extremely talented uh, modeler um, and uh, specialist in simulation tools called Michael Rickelson, um, who was working at Alingi. He, he's also um, senior at North Sales and um, did my PhD effectively supervised by him. And um, so I learned a lot through that campaign, um, although I was I was working remotely, not not with the team. So how does a, a boy from the centre of England who doesn't really have a sailing background, where does that interest in boats come from? Yeah, I mean, I did I did some sailing. My, my father uh, sailed and, um, the, yeah, although it's about as far away from the sea as you can get in England, there was a, a reservoir that we used to sail on. Um, I mean, it was a terrible place to sail. It's just tiny, tiny reservoir surrounded by trees and the wind's going in pretty much every direction at once. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it uh, a lot. And I think... Uh, I mean, I've also just just enjoy the aesthetic of of yachts and boats. Um, you know, aside from the sailing itself, I I like the the design aspect. You know, the aesthetic design. Um, I guess at, at some point, I, I sort of thought I'd I'd end up more in a, a more traditional um, boat design type role than than something at the sort of really technical end. But you know, that's, that's not where I am now. Um, but yeah, I mean. It, it sort of appeals to me in the same way that, that architecture does. There's always time to go and design classic boats at some stage anyway. But am I right in saying that you joined Team Germany for the 2007 America's Cup in, in Valencia? Yeah, that's right. I, I finished my PhD with Alinghi, um maybe six or eight months before the end of that cup cycle. And um, Alinghi said... We're, you know, we're definitely interested in you working for us for the next cup, but you know, why not go and get some experience? And, and Team Germany had a, a vacancy, 
So I went and worked with Team Germany for the um, the end of the 2007 Cup. And, you know, it was really, really cool. Um, a lot of experience of working from a, a team at the other end of the spectrum. How did it compare, you know, after being in Formula One? Was it sort of uh, what you had expected and, and hoped? <laughs> um, it was all over the place, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I mean, we it was a fun team to be with. Um, I think it was pretty clear to, to to most people involved quite early on in the German team that we weren't really in contention of winning, um, but we were going to have a good time uh, whilst we were there. It, it was it was a pretty late campaign to get started, um, and not a huge amount of cup experience in the team. The the design team was was tiny, uh, so when I arrived, you know there was there was plenty of um, opportunity for me to to get stuck in and get involved, and it was um, yeah, I mean it, it was just good to see the the organisation um, from at, at that sort of end of the spectrum, uh, and actually the team, I mean the team was funded by United Internet. And I think from their point of view, they actually had a, a really successful campaign. You know, th- their aim was to get a lot of publicity. The the German press were saying for, for months building up to it how Germany was going to win the America's Cup, you know, all on the front page of the newspapers every day. And then when we started doing terribly in the races, we got even more coverage. So from a publicity point of view, it was a massive success. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we, we learned a lot and... Uh, Unfortunately, the, the, the team was keen to carry on for the next campaign, but it turned into the, the deed of gift match between Oracle and Lingi. So um, like a lot of teams, they, they disappeared at that point. So just for the record, Team Germany finished, I think, was 10th out of 11 teams in that, that Louis Vuitton Cup. Um, so you did you go directly to Lingi for that 2010 America's Cup deed of gift one? That was the multi-hole challenge when Oracle won with their 90-foot catamaran against the Lingy's 90-foot catamaran. Uh, Oracle had the trimaran, rather, and, and Lingy had the 90-foot catamaran. That's you know, right, yeah. What was your role this time around? And, and, you know, that must have been quite a different experience, just a one-on-one competition like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously not what I was expecting when I went to Lingy right at the beginning of that ca- campaign. We, we thought we were going to be designing 90-foot monohulls. Um, and we, we did. We, we started doing that. Um, even in the face of the court case, we sort of carried on regardless for a little bit, assuming everything was going to turn out okay. And then at some point we were like, okay, let's face the reality. We, we have got a deed of gift match. Um, we better start designing a, a deed of gift boat. So um, it, it was a pretty awesome experience. You know, it's, it's weird for designers and engineers to be faced in, with a situation where you have no rules effectively, no class rule, um, no real engineering standards. You've just got an open book to design something that is as fast as possible uh, without constraint. Obviously, knowing you know what we know now, uh, what is it, 12 years later, uh, we could design something that's much, much faster, uh, and something that could have could have beaten both of those boats at a much with a much lower budget and a much smaller scale. Um, but at the time when foiling, big boat foiling wasn't a thing, um, we went for this 100 and well, yeah, 115 foot um, length overall yacht uh, catamaran with um, incredibly tall mast and. Uh, 
yeah, really powerful boat. Um, but yeah, it turned out to be not quick enough. Is that sort of some of the most exciting designing when you've got that open book as opposed to something that's really rigid class rules? Um, I, I think as as engineers and designers, we actually quite enjoy rules and constraints. It gives you something to sort of push hard against and to try and beat. It's it's tricky when you haven't got that. And I mean, the, generally, you know that the bigger the boat, the faster it will go. So where do you stop? Um, you you know, you kind of comes down to what you can physically build in the time. Um, how, how many sailors can you get on the boat to actually handle the sails? How would you load the sails onto the boat if it gets any bigger? So, um, I mean, it was really exciting for me because it was my first time sort of going through a campaign from the beginning and I was uh, just thrown into the deep end um, designing the daggerboards uh, on that boat and running the, the VPP. So, yeah, I mean, a uh, huge learning curve for me and super exciting. So after that one, um, later that year, you joined Team New Zealand. Um, ha- how did that come about, given that Alingi had sort of basically um, opened the door for you five years earlier? Yeah, I mean, we when we lost the, the Data Gift match in, um, in um, 2010, it, uh, Ernesto, our, our head of the team, basically decided to call it a day for the time being. And so the team pretty much disbanded and we all went our separate ways. So I, I actually initially went to the British team, um, but then the British team pulled out of the AC72 Cup um, quite early on. And so then I yeah, started sending my CV around and um, luckily Team New Zealand hadn't filled the, the spot of the, the what they call the VPP guy, um, person that runs the boat simulations, models the boat and does the performance prediction. Um, that was about the only spot in the, the team they hadn't yet filled. So I was lucky to um, to get that role. And uh, sort of within, within a couple of days, I was um, on a plane to New Zealand. Did you think it was going to be the start of such a long-term association? And I'm guessing, you know, you, you uproot your family and come on over the other side of the world? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I had no idea that, that I'd, I'd still be here um, so many years later. But, um, I, you know, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I love New Zealand and I, I love the team. So, um, you know, I've got, got no plans to to leave either um and you know when eventually they they kick me out of team new zealand then i, I expect i'll uh, find my retirement in, in new zealand and be very happy here designing classic boats obviously right <laughs> yeah maybe um it was that era you know a big change in america's cup racing and we saw the use of the ac72 wing sail catamarans you know, it felt like you've gone through so many different iterations. Was this another exciting kind of time to be involved because everything was evolving so quickly? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, the AC72 was an amazing campaign because we the rules were written with an idea that possibly foiling might be a thing, but they didn't want it. So... Uh, the rules were written to, to prevent foiling, um, and they did that by putting some control systems rules in to, to stop any sort of automatic control of ride height, um, which which was used on on moths, which were really the only sort of mainstream foiling boats at that time. Um, so they, they did their best to prevent it, but uh, we had a really open 
team in, in sort of from the top from management uh you know it's kind of like well you know let's try anything let's be open to to exploring so we we set about from the beginning thinking that if if we could crack foiling then you know that was that was going to be it that was going to be the one thing that was going to win you the cup so we put our efforts into that put all our, all our eggs in that basket really and just um tried to work out how you could get a boat foiling within those rules what was that like the first time that it got up yeah it was absolutely amazing i mean we again as like like with the ac75 we knew from the physics that it it should work um we'd approached it from a sort of very mathematical um standpoint and we we were reasonably confident it was going to work but yeah i mean seeing that seeing that boat foiling was you know absolutely a pivotal moment for the whole team and uh yeah a lot of euphoria i think well there's actually i think photographic evidence from that day of training and you know obviously with the spies from the other teams on the water um but apparently some designers from the other teams didn't believe the photographs they were looking at just just talk to me about that yeah i mean we were <laughs> it's pretty pretty incredible to hear that um I mean, we we had I had uh, emails from from most of other teams just you know saying, well, nice job on Photoshop. Uh, you know, they really thought that it was completely made up. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was pretty incredible um, for everyone, I think, to see a boat that size foiling. How much of a game you know is involved when it comes to the the team spies, and are there ever times when you try to bluff a little or, or put other teams off the scent? It's, it's pretty difficult to hide um, what you're doing on the water when there's there's people following you all the time. I mean, yeah, you, you try sometimes, but it's it, it's hard. Uh, I, I think it's more about picking your timing. Um, you know, when to when to go out and show something because you know that as soon as you test it on the water, it's going to be seen. So, you know, an example of that was the, the cycling uh, on the AC50s in Bermuda. We, we knew we were going to be cycling a long, long time before we ever went out on the water and did it. Be and we, we sort of calculated how, how early could we do it such that if somebody at that point decided to try and copy, it would really be a big distraction to their, their campaign because it would sort of, yes, they'd be able to, to get the bikes in there and do it, but they'd be be so much disruption to sort of their build up to the race that we thought it was you know we we could we could do it at that point so yeah a lot of strategy into timing um i mean that was just one example but there's lots of things with you know foils and rudders about thinking when do you when do you show your cards was that born out of um the previous campaign in which you got had, you got up foiling and i think you sort of talked about you know maybe if we'd hidden that one a bit longer um, it, it could have worked in our favour. Yeah, I mean, I guess when when you come so close to winning, uh, as we did in in San Francisco, you only need you know one of a thousand things to to have uh, you know you only need to have done one of those things slightly better, and it probably would have made the difference. So yeah, I, I think without doubt we we probably peaked a little bit early in that campaign, um, and you know, we, we made a big step forward, but um, then when Oracle uh, caught up, you know, they're they on a trajectory of continuous improvement and, and we probably 
um, got a little bit too comfortable um, rather than um, sort of continuing development right until the end. Given that falling was so new and, and you were even trying to work out whether it was possible with these boats, could you have kept it secret for any longer than you did? Uh, I guess we, we could have just not gone foiling and, you know, just, just shut up shop for six months and then, and then come out later. But, uh, you know, you, you, it's easy with hindsight to say that, but you, you, you never know how well it's going to work and, and, you know, how much time it's going to take to develop. So, you know, our strategy at that point was, you know, just keep, keep pushing forward, um, just, just stay ahead all the way. Um, and, you know, we were, we were very, very close to succeeding there, but yeah, probably, um, you know, just became possibly a little bit conservative towards the end. So a lot of people took that defeat in that campaign pretty hard, which was understandable. You know, it's well known Oracle's come back from from eight one down. How did it affect you? Yeah, it was pretty tough. Um, I mean, I, I guess I I didn't go to San Francisco expecting that we were going to win, but when you get to eight one up and you just need one more race, and it, it, you know it's it's hard hard not to sort of believe that you, you you've nearly done it um so yeah it was pretty crushing for for everyone and um yeah definitely uh you know something i'm not going to forget in a hurry did that then have an impact i guess on how you attacked that 2017 campaign yeah we we had a massive debrief within the team and you know stripped the team right back um and thought how are we going to tackle this Bermuda campaign and and our budget was pretty limited too and we were we were late getting going because of that and I think it just gave us that energy and commitment not to hold back on anything just to you know really throw the ball as far as we could in the design we knew we weren't going to win by being conservative when we were already starting late so we just had to you know, go for gold, basically, push every stop we had in design and, you know, come out with with what we thought was our, our best package um, and probably put reliability a little bit lower down the list of priorities. You've, you mentioned them before about putting site clause on, on the boat. Um, where did that idea come from because it's the one that probably captured the imagination of most um, particularly the lay kind of sailor yeah I, I think I mean it's, it wasn't a new idea I mean I, I remember when I first joined Alinghi I was you know saying why, why do people grind when there's surely there's more power in the legs and it's a common question um, the, the response has always been well the sailors need to um, be able to move around and, and grab ropes and you don't want to be locked in on a bike and it's difficult tacking and, and so on. But I think, you know, a lot of that that feeling came from grinders who, uh, you know, often were in pretty senior positions in the teams and, you know, their whole career is, is based on upper body strength. So it was actually a, a lot of inertia to, to sort of make that switch. Um, we were in a situation at the beginning of the Bermuda campaign where the sailing team was was stripped right back and it was, I guess, you know, there was basically no one to object at that point. Um, so we had that free reign to, to actually explore, you know, without constraint, what was the best option. So 
it was clear we were going to be really underpowered on that, those boats. You need a lot of human power, but also we were going to need a lot of control input. You uh, you needed um, to be managing the right height for foiling, um, the wing and the steering, and there just weren't enough people on the boat to be um, controlling all those with things with your hands and putting in the, the power. So it kind of was a bit of a no-brainer that it makes more sense to be using your legs for power and free up your hands for controlling the control surfaces. Was it ever difficult to incorporate into a boat design? Yeah, when we started that campaign, the it was actually a, a 62-foot cat. And then due to some cost-cutting measures uh, throughout the event um, in the first year, the, the boat was downsized from a 62-foot to the 50-foot, the which is what we raced. So we'd, we'd sort of done all our initial studies on packaging and how we would get the, the cyclos into the boats at 62-foot. Suddenly we found a Know, the footprint's massively reduced, and and that was quite a blow. And we were like, ah, oh, you know, how, it's it's not going to work. But we, you know, built mock-ups and um, went through dozens of iterations of how you would get them in, and you know, concluded in the end, yes, we could actually do it, and um, they're going to be quite high up out of the cockpits. But through the aerodynamic studies, we we found that that was actually um, you know not not too bad. So yeah, it worked in the end. Well, obviously, much has been made of those sight claws um, because they're so visible elements, I'm guessing. But just how much of a factor was it in the overall success in 2017? Or was it more the stuff that we didn't see that made the difference? Um, I, it was part of the success, um, but just, just one piece of the puzzle, I think, and the, the visible one, as you say. Uh, I, I think on top of that, um, there's the wing control systems, uh, so our aerodynamics, and the foils. Um, you know, we, we pushed our foil designs pretty far. We concentrated very hard on both the structural and the uh, hydrodynamic shape of those foils. So, yeah, it was really just getting all the pieces of the puzzle together um, in an efficient way, I think, that made the difference. Does it still surprise you, you know, the variants and designs that we see across the teams? Because it was illustrated again in Auckland last year with four very different boats. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised at the differences we saw for the first generation of the AC-75 class. I mean, if anything, um, I guess I, I was more worried the other way, that, that, that one team might be so far ahead that, that there wouldn't be um, competitive racing, you know, which certainly wasn't the case. You know, we had some really good racing in in the early rounds and um, in the match itself against Luna Rossa. Um, so, you know, they were actually, to me, they were surprisingly close because I think there is a risk when you come up with a completely new class that, that you know, one, one team will get it right and the others will get it wrong. Uh, and, you know, whilst whilst they're super cool boats, there's always that risk that the racing won't be that exciting. But, um, you know, it turned out to be great. It certainly was. Um, you know, simulation has become a massive tool in America's Cup, and, and team using, for my mind, probably the, the team to utilise it the most in the early days. Is, is that a result of your time with Formula One and the use of simulators in motor racing? Yeah, definitely. I, I um, brought uh, with me um, from, from Formula One that, that sort of feeling that uh, of how much value there is in being able to model the car or the boat very accurately um, in physics and mathematics and by by having a really accurate model 
it, it allows you to iterate designs really quickly and understand you know what what aspects of a design are going to improve the performance or help you foil more stably um, and so that when you do actually build something you're, you're building something which is already sort of several design iterations uh, down the track rather than sort of the 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 older school method before simulation was a big thing of of just uh, prototyping building trying something um, and then making changes and trying again uh, the next week is it more accurate than the old school way? Oh, without doubt, it's massively more accurate. Um, I think with with these boats, uh, you know, the speeds they're going now. If if you tried to do two boat testing, you sort of with one baseline boat and another boat where you're making changes, you're always going to be sailing in slightly different breeze, slightly different current and waves, and it, it would be very, very difficult to measure the the small magnitudes of differences we're looking for. You know, each each little design change, you're looking for tenths of a percent that that eventually add up into to something worthwhile. But trying to trying to measure those differences on the water is, is pretty much impossible. So the the only way you can really iterate and design now is, is through simulation. And then you're using your time on the water to, to validate the big picture, to check that your simulations are actually modeling things correctly. And then where you're seeing differences between the behavior of the boat on the water and the simulation, that's an opportunity for you to then look hard at what, what might be missing in your simulation and, and try and do a more accurate job. We, we, we talked briefly about it earlier, about um, the amount of data that, that's being fed from the boat. Just Just talk to me. A little bit more about you know what's coming in and how much you you've got to, to deal with. Yeah, we've got a huge number of sensors on the boat. Where I mean, starting with the, the position and, and speed of the boat and the leeway, then there's the the wind instrumentation. Um, then we're logging uh, positions of every control surface, so the flaps or the um, the twist and the the um, sail shapes um, using lidar. Uh, we've got optic fiber strain measurements uh, throughout the whole structure, the foils um, and the masts. So yeah, just a huge number of, of data channels coming in, monitoring everything from, from both the performance point of view and a, a structural safety point of view. Can it ever get to the point where there's just too much information and you'd sort of almost need to go with your gut to make decisions? Yeah, I mean, there's a real uh, skill to being able to condense that information into something that's that's useful and meaningful to design, and it's you know it's a, a big part of what we do in the design team is um, writing processes that allow us to to use the data we get off the boat um, to to help us make informed decisions. Uh, I I mean you, yeah you say do you just go with your gut I I'd say not very often really. Um, I, Pretty much all the decisions we make are, would be based on a sort of analytical approach. Um, and I guess there's some things that are difficult to put into numbers, but uh, you know, feedback from sailors on, on how a boat's behaving is, is sometimes difficult to put your finger on exactly what it is um, that's being described, but it, it doesn't stop us trying. And you know, ultimately, we're, we're always trying to quantify and to really model and understand the physics uh, as accurately as we can. The next America's Cup is, you know, still a little way off, but um, where are you at with the design stage this time around? 
Um, we're pretty busy at the moment with the AC40. So um, the majority of the, the design team is is working on that. We're, we're just starting construction of the AC40s at McConaughey's in China. Um, but, you know, like all all uh, boat builds, you, you start construction long before the design is complete. And so, so we're sort of just staying one step ahead in design and, and supplying drawings as they need them. So we're... So we're Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, when, when are we going to see a boat on the water, for example? Um, the first AC40 um, should be on the water in September, uh, which, you know, isn't isn't far off uh, in a sort of boat construction time frame. So, yeah, we're, we're focusing on, on finishing the design of that. And um, then we'll we'll get into the design or the, the concept stage of, of AC75s and start thinking about what we're going to do for our, our effectively boat three, our third generation 75. So can we expect more innovation on, on the next boat or is it sort of fine tuning what you produced last time around? I think the innovations will be harder to spot. Uh, the... It, so it is it is more in the fine tuning i mean the it is it's the second generation of, of the class rule and the, the probably the third generation of the yachts given that all teams um went through two yachts last time so um there are some differences in the rule the, the foil wings are uh, longer span um the mass of the boat has come down uh, the bowsprit and code zero has, has been dispensed with because we, we really don't feel we, we need those and they're, they're adding unnecessary weight. Uh, we're getting rid of the runners. So, yeah, the, there's some some improvements to the class rule, um, but uh, I, I think the, the boats will look more similar to each other and I'm sure the performance um, between the competitors this time round will be um, really, really close, you know, and that, that's what happens as you get, uh, more mature within a, a class role. Well, it's going to be fascinating when they, they hit the water, that's for sure. Hey, we've got to that point of our chat um, where I'm going to ask you your worst wipeout ever. So I'm intrigued to see what you come up with. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, my, my very, very first time ever on a, a yacht, so anything bigger than a dinghy, was um, with a friend at McLaren uh, who who'd just bought a yacht. And I, I hadn't been sailing for quite a few years at that point. Um, so we went down to Southampton Water. Uh, it was quite a small yacht, probably about 25 feet. Um, a really breezy day. I mean, it was 25 knots, um, really big breeze. And we, we set out, we, we kind of been 10 minutes from the, from the marina. And um, everything was a bit of a fluster and uh you know in that, those kind of conditions on a brand new boat and he he said oh we'll just we'll just um bear away onto a nice safe run kept going further and further downwind and so me trying to dig up my, my last um sailing experience i was thinking this this doesn't feel all that safe you know i was keeping my head down uh, but you know I, I was like well you know he obviously knows what he's doing and and sure enough uh we had a, a massive jibe um boat broached straight into the path of a, a much bigger yacht um that came crashing down the anchor came slicing through our rigging through the deck um and so yeah just within 10 minutes of leaving the dock on this brand new boat it was it was in pieces uh, we we made it back to the marina um afloat but yeah that was uh, quite a baptism of fire for my uh, my yachting experience 
Yeah, I'm sure you just yelled out, look, it's okay. I'm going to become one of the world's preeminent uh, boat <laughs> designers. Don't worry. We know what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, how much sailing do you actually sort of do? Oh, um, n- not enough. I, I've got a, a Townsend 38. It's um, a, a wooden boat built in uh, 1983, a beautiful boat. Um, so, yeah, I love cruising. I was at Great Barrier uh, over Christmas and uh, just up at Maharangi uh, last weekend. But, um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be out on the water more, um, but it's a pretty full-time job here. It sure is. Hey, well, a little bit better let you get back to that full-time job. I really appreciate your time. It's been fascinating to get a more of an insight, uh, I guess, to what goes on behind the scenes, um, particularly in America's Cup. So um, thanks for your time for joining Broadreach Radio. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, that's it for another edition of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. It was my pleasure to put this one together, like the 43 episodes that came before. It's always great to hear what you think, so drop me a line with any feedback or suggestions to michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Until next time, take care.